Shift is brought to you by Ricardo. The Ricardo Mobility Summit is April 22nd, featuring Ford CTO Dr. Ken Washington, Microsoft VP Uli Homan, Toyota Motor North America Group VP, Advanced Mobility R&D, Monte Care, and dozens more. Presented virtually in conjunction with Automotive News. Go to ricardo-northamerica.com to register. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. Hi, everybody. It's Leslie Allen, editor of Shift Magazine. And it's Alexa St. John, covering tech and suppliers. Our guest on the podcast this week is Sean Harrington, the new CEO at Optimus Ride. But before we get to Sean, Leslie and Alexa, I want to ask you both about all the headlines I have seen lately this week about uh, the chip shortage in the auto industry. Uh, there's various plants closing down temporarily. This seems like the, the perfect storm. Uh, Alexa, what does this mean? Well, Pete, there are a lot of uh, challenges facing the supply chain right now. And uh, because of that, the broader auto industry, we've seen this semiconductor shortage play out for a couple of months now, and uh, things don't seem to be changing all that much. Um, and then, of course, we had uh, that winter storm in Texas, which took down some uh, oil facilities, and that's impacting uh, seeding foam. Um, and there are a couple of other dynamics going on that really, as you put it, the perfect storm for the industry. Uh, with the chip shortage in particular, what really has been going on is uh, when the auto industry shut down last spring, last uh, March and April, and so uh, they canceled a lot of their orders for chips. But at the same time, uh, the big tech industry and consumer electronics continued to place orders for, for chips. And, and you know, the auto industry did not expect the overwhelming demand uh, that it has seen kind of as we're nearing post-COVID times for vehicles. And so uh, there is this shortage of semiconductors for the auto industry. Uh, it's a very unique dynamic for them to be uh, almost competing with big tech in a sense for this really, really critical component. You know, I've heard from sources that uh, that very typical uh, line, you can't build a car if you're missing even just one part. And that's exactly the situation we're in right now. Uh, but it could also be multiple parts, as I said, with uh, the seating foam situation as well. So there's a lot playing out. We have had some discussion from the federal government, from the Biden administration, exactly uh, what to do to mitigate this situation. But that's that's more long term. There's not much that can be done overnight in terms of uh, boosting chip capacity and, and getting those production uh, lines uh, back up and running. So it will be interesting to watch. Uh, you know, for everyone that I speak with, it seems the forecasts of how long this could really last uh, keep getting pushed back further and further into uh, Q2, Q3, and some are saying even early 2022, we may still be seeing the impacts of this. Leslie, I was going to ask you, what do you see as the, the ramifications for, for the auto industry as, as we look at what Alexa just described as a, you know, potentially year-long uh, disconnect? Gosh, uh, that's, a, that's the key question. I don't think anybody really knows. I guess it depends uh, on how quickly they can ramp up production. I mean, I would imagine that we'll see quite a lot of impact in the mobility world. I mean, and, and, you know, Alexa, you can correct me. I don't know if these are the same type of chips that they use uh, to power some systems in EVs and also in um, automated vehicles, but I would imagine there will be some spillover effect uh, that we'll be seeing for quite a long time. I mean, it's a, 
it's something that we're really going to have to keep our eyes on, but I don't think this is going to be an easy year. We thought this was a comeback year for sales, and uh, we might see um, some pent-up demand next year as the industry struggles to bring itself back to full capacity this year. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. It's, you know, as vehicles become more electronic and require more of these uh, chips, there is going to be more of this competition again with, with consumer electronics. I, I've heard a lot that, you know, the demand for chips on the auto side will not uh, meet the consumer electronics demand for chips uh, anytime soon, but, you know, it's certainly growing on, on the auto side. And so, you know, even if this current situation, the current shortage is solved at some point in the coming three, six, you know, nine months, uh, it's still going to be kind of this long term ongoing issue of, of who gets the chips. And uh, it'll, it'll definitely be, be interesting to watch. And speaking of ongoing issues and things that don't have easy answers, I know, Pete, you've been following some, latest, some of the latest developments with Tesla. And uh, unfortunately, we're hearing about even more incidents involving Tesla vehicles and um, accidents. So can you uh, update us a little bit about what's going on with that? Sure. There's been two notable crashes in the last, uh, I guess it's probably the last 10 days or so that, uh, that potentially involve autopilots. Uh, I don't want to say for sure that, that they do, but, uh, but law enforcement and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration are investigating uh, autopilot's potential role in a, a crash in Detroit um, that, that look awfully similar to some of the other autopilot crashes we've seen where, where the system does not recognize a crossing truck and the car goes right into the side of the, the trailer. Uh, there's two people who, uh, who were critically injured in that crash. And then more recently, there was a crash in Lansing, Michigan, uh, last week that involved a, uh, a car that, uh, a Tesla vehicle that struck a stopped uh, police car on the side of the road. And that, you know, there is a history of autopilot-related crashes where, where the cars with autopilot enabled are striking stationary uh, fire trucks, police cars, uh, police motorcycles. So, uh, you know, I think this might be, the big picture to me is we've kind of heard that there's a lot of safety advocates who want NHTSA to take a more assertive role in, in, you know, responding to what they see as this, you know, safety issue with autopilots. Uh, the previous administration was, was pretty hands-off. And now that we have a couple of very fresh incidents, potentially, that um, we'll see if NHTSA steps up and, and shows its regulatory teeth. So, so bears, bears watching, but a lot of unanswered questions right now is the, the short version. Of course, at the heart of a lot of these um, crashes, a lot of these incidents, a lot of the criticism is the entire definition of autonomy and whether people are misinterpreting the uh, phrase autopilot. That's going to be a big part, I would imagine, of what NHTSA does when it's doing this investigation. And maybe we'll finally see some kind of recommendations or some kind of a crackdown on the use of various terminology to describe automation. But uh, meantime, the march toward autonomous vehicles does go on. We have several deployments of robo-taxis, if you will, and um, shuttles that, that are happening across the country. And we're going to find out about one of those companies that's very involved in that. 
we sat down to, to discuss this with Sean Harrington. And Sean is the new CEO of Optimus Ride, which is a company that has self-driving shuttles on the roads and campus environments in um, Boston, Washington, D.C., California, et cetera. So he's going to tell us about some of the latest developments with that. So um, as Pete would say, without further ado, why don't we go straight to our conversation with Sean. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So um, why don't we go ahead and start with maybe uh, an introduction for those who might not be familiar with Optimus Ride. Now, from what I read, the Optimus Ride focuses on services ideal for communities, campuses, and mixed-use developments. So can you walk us through the strategy that uh, of where you've chosen to deploy your shuttles and um, what makes these types of settings good for putting your shuttles out there? Thanks, yes. Um, so Optimus Ride has developed a level four autonomous vehicle system uh, that we operate in a mobility as a service model and primarily focus on customers who operate uh, communities, uh, campuses, and mixed-use developments, as you said. And the reason why we focus in those areas is because um, we see that this is where AV has the opportunity to unlock tremendous amount of value uh, in the near term, not five or 10 years away, but, but today, uh, and increasingly over the next few years. Um, and that's because uh, if you look at the types of, uh, you know, mobility services that are required in these environments, if you think about an academic campus or a corporate campus or, or a mixed-use development like the one we uh, are deployed in now in Washington called The Yards with Brookfield, um, there are a high concentration of short trips. And those trips are in a given area, so we can geofence the environment in which we operate. And that makes it far more feasible to get to full autonomy with today's technology um, and do so, uh, you know, in a way that that delivers uh, a lot of value to the constituents of that area. So, for example, um, you know, in a lot of our environments, it's about getting people to and from local transit hubs uh, or, you know, areas of interest near those campuses or in and around the, the, the campus. Um, and that's an ideal setting for uh, an autonomous vehicle where, uh, the, you know, the route is predefined, it's lower speed. Uh, and that way, um, you know, we, we can we can you know deliver the service now as we are doing, uh, you know, and and get to you know fully autonomous here uh, in in the the near future. Now you mentioned routes that are predefined and lower speed. So, just in terms of the type of traffic situations, whether they're lots of traffic lights or different lanes and pedestrians. Can you tell me the types of road conditions that you are using to train your system? Yeah, we're operating in a number of different environments and the system is flexible and we've designed it to operate in those different types of environments. So if, for example, we operate in a, um, a retirement community uh, out in California uh, called uh, Paradise Valley Estates, and there, you know, there there are not a lot of cars parked on the side of the road. Um, there is, you know, there are no traffic signals. There are no 
um, you know, lane demarcations. And so it, it's quite a, a simple environment in many ways, um, but you also have, you know, unique situations that you run into in those types of environments like, you know, pedestrians, residents often sort of walking on the road. Uh, now and again, you have landscaping vehicles on the side of the road. Um, and you compare that to, uh, you know, a couple of the, the, the more complex environments in which we operate, uh, like the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and there you have parked cars on the road, you have larger trucks going by, um, you have a, a greater number of, uh, it, you know, controlled uh, intersections. Um, and so we, while we're not operating, you know, in you know, full urban environments uh, with, with the, the level of complexity uh, that, that you might see, um, you know, in a city center or, you know, with, you know, freeways, um, we, we do have to be flexible to accommodate a number of, of, you know, different conditions and environments. Yeah, you're also in different climates. I mean, uh, you're in California and you're also in Boston. I mean, I would imagine that helps to train your system quite a bit as well. It is, and one of the benefits that we see with the approach we've taken is that we have been able to get out into real-world deployments. We have five now commercial sites um, that are, uh, you know, delivering services and uh, also helping to train our models. So, as you mentioned, um, you know, having a variety of locations where we operate the vehicles and the vehicles are are collecting data every day, um, we can use that data to you know, to help improve the autonomy system, as well as inform future decisions about, you know, what, what we develop, uh, you know, with the holistic product, not just, um, you know, not just the autonomy, but the mobile app, uh, for example, the OptiRide app that we released last month in conjunction with the launch of passenger service at the yards in Washington, DC. Um, you know, having real customers using our service has uh, been extremely helpful in advancing our autonomy system uh, through the collection of the data at those sites as well as getting feedback from those uh, end users as well as our our you know, business customers that are paying for the service. Are there plans to expand to non-campus settings and to charge for rides? Today our model is is focused on delivering services in and around these types of campus environments. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that we have to strictly stick within the bounds of of some you know private campus. So, for example, again, at, at, you know, using the the yards in DC as an example, um, you know, that's a a Brookfield development that has residential, uh, you know, has residents, it has uh, commercial and retail uh, tenants, um, and we operate within that development. But we also have a route that goes uh, beyond. Uh, the confines of the development up toward the Capitol building uh, stops at a couple of the metro stations. So already today, we are going in and around these types of environments. Uh, and uh, as the technology evolves and progresses, we see the opportunity to continue to expand the area uh, in which we can operate around some of these types of, of locations. Um, and, uh, you know, just offer a, a greater variety of services. Today, it's, it's paid for by our business customers who, you know, have a significant incentive to provide mobility for the constituents in their, uh, you know, in their areas. Um, in, in the future, we certainly see opportunities to 
uh, you know, also offer services that, you know, those business customers may not be willing to pay for, but, but consumers would, um, whether it be, you know, for rides that, that extend beyond uh, sort of that immediate area around the campus, uh, you know, beyond the area where the, the campus operator feels they, they, they ought to be providing that service um, or outside of typical operating hours. Um, so, you know, that's, that's certainly something that, uh, you know, that we see as an option uh, further in the future. Now, you, you've mentioned before that the driverless shuttles really could be on the horizon. We could, we could see them uh, relatively soon. What has to happen to allow companies uh, like yours and, you know, more importantly, the public uh, to feel comfortable removing safety drivers from these vehicles? Yes, we, we do see uh, the, the future with fully autonomous vehicles, meaning um, removing the safety operator. Today we operate um, autonomously, but with, um, you know, with, with those uh, safety operators there as, as a backup to the autonomy system. Of course, uh, the most important uh, consideration when it comes to getting to fully autonomous is safety. Um, and uh, we spend a great deal of time uh, you know, now looking ahead at all of the safety requirements that we need to pass uh, in order to be able to remove the safety operator uh, in our, you know, operating environment. And, uh, and that means, uh, you know, using all manner of, of testing, so simulation on track, uh, as well as, as on-road testing, um, you know, to meet, uh, you know, to meet a, a predefined uh, you know, standard uh, for uh, safety. Uh, and then, of course, there's also uh, the uh, adoption, the end user adoption that needs to be considered because, of course, everybody uh, today is, is used to getting in a vehicle and, and seeing the driver, looking them in the eye, and uh, the driver plays a role beyond just uh, operating the vehicle. They're often the concierge and uh, collecting payments, uh, you know, providing, uh, you know, direction and other customer service. And so, um, you know, that's, that's being thoughtfully uh, built into what we call uh, the DVX, the uh, driverless experience. Um, and that's a combination of, uh, you know, the, the mobile app, the end user app, uh, as well as the visual cues and, and, uh, you know, interactivity that will be built into the vehicle and that, that experience when they're, they're inside. So um, it's going to take, you know, in, in part, people seeing these vehicles out more and more and w where we see the opportunity to, uh, to, you know, really gain that type of user acceptance is in these campus and community environments because, um, you know, folks are, are generally using those services on a very regular basis. and um, you know, get get comfortable with the fact that the vehicles are are there and running autonomously. And ultimately, when uh, the safety operator is removed, um, you know, they've had they've had time to really kind of get accustomed uh, to this mode of, of transportation. So um, it, it's it's another reason why we're particularly uh, excited about uh, this opportunity to uh, use autonomous vehicle technology in this type of of campus and community environments. So what are your views on teleoperation of self-driving vehicles? Do you think that's a necessary uh, step uh, for adoption and, and, and this idea of getting uh, riders more comfortable? 
We do believe that um, you know having humans still involved uh, remotely monitoring activity with autonomous vehicles will, will be part of the equation. So as we uh, make this transition to uh, you know fully autonomous, uh, you know we certainly believe and have, have built into our plans and in our software development um, the ability ability for humans to uh, you know, to be able to both interact with the with the users of the system, the riders who are in vehicles, uh, and be able to respond as as needed to you know, uh, you know questions or or um, you know any mechanical issues that arise, um, as well as to be able to monitor the autonomy of the system and uh, you know when needed be able to. You provide that additional layer of of human judgment uh, to a given situation, uh, you know, and and uh, you sort of assist remotely with uh, the autonomy. Of course, the the autonomous system has to be able to um, you know manage all situations uh, you know safely and be able to react um, you know without that human intervention. Uh, such that 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 uh, safety is is uh, that degree of safety is maintained, um, but there are certainly situations where human judgment coming in to help kind of um, you know make a decision about what to do next uh, if if a, a vehicle encounters a situation that where it needs that type of uh, human judgment um, you know will will be a part of the equation. Sean, I'd like to. Um change gears for a moment and talk to you about Optimus Ride as a business. And obviously you are in there to make money and to grow the company. So <laughs> what is the mm -hmm. long-term growth plan for the company? And, uh, you know, we checked the uh, crunch base and it looks like you guys have attracted about $76 million in funding so far. So um, do you have plans for public offering at some point or merger? So how, how do you plan to grow the company? Yeah, we've been really fortunate to have uh, a cadre of high caliber investors who have believed in the company and the mission for a long time. And, and of course, they're, they're uh, you know, interested in continuing to support us going into the future. Um, this is a really big market opportunity that we're going after. Um, you know, th this is not small, this, uh, th this opportunity to go deploy mobility as a service in, in these uh, target markets that we've been talking about. I mean, these are tens of billions in, in you know, addressable market that we're pursuing. And so with, you know, with the progress that we've made with the technology and the existing deployments that we have, um, validating our, you know, our clear path to getting to full autonomy in this uh, you know, very large market, um, you know, we, we, have, uh, we have options in terms of uh, you know, where we go next in terms of funding. So certainly we've been very capital efficient up to this point in part because of the strategy that we took to be very laser focused on level four autonomy, i.e. geofenced and lower speed and, and, and operating these environments. Um, at the same time, it is, it is going to uh, take an, an increase in investment on the resources front for us to get from where we are today to uh, fully driverless and uh, absolutely, we will be, uh, you know, raising more capital to, uh, you know, to support the investments that are needed. Uh, everybody is out, you know, uh, fascinated by what's happening with the public markets and the strong interest in, 
uh, technology companies that have really big markets, uh, you know, like ours. Um, but there are also, uh, there is a very robust, healthy, um, you know, active market of private investors who are looking for companies that, that have the technology and the team and the ambition that we do. And so, um, you know, we're, we're in the process now of, um, evaluating our options as we, uh, as we plan for the future and, and certainly, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be raising the capital that we need to, to make the type of uh, increased investments over the coming years. So it's good to hear that there is, so there is an appetite out there in the investment community for companies like yours, you know, cause you know, cause some might think, well, you have a kind of a limited focus, but I guess that can also be a selling point. Yeah, I think w the, the, the way I think about it is it, we, we have struck a, a, a very uh, thoughtful balance between being practical and pragmatic and looking at autonomous vehicle technology and you know where we see the opportunity to unlock value and and you know drive revenue in in the next few years not the next decade or you know five to ten years out but but in the in the near enough term with a big enough market um, and have also um, you know and so we've constrained the problem enough, but have uh, maintained a large enough market to go target and have a big enough ambition um, that it, you know, it is attractive uh, to investors. And, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to continue on that path. And, and in the, you know, in the longer run, as we start to increase our capability and again, go beyond the real core campus uh, and community environments and, and be able to expand the zone in which we can operate. Um, you know, certainly we see, uh, you know, we see an even, you know, larger market opportunity, uh, you know, as we progress. We're going to take a short break from our conversation with Sean for a, a word from our sponsor. The Ricardo Mobility Summit Convergence is April 22nd, featuring Ford CTO Ken Washington, Microsoft VP Uli Homan, Toyota Motor Group VP Advanced Mobility R&D Monty Care, and dozens of other amazing thought leaders across transport, business, defense, government, private equity, and software. Convergence, presented virtually in conjunction with Automotive News, spotlights the best and brightest minds from companies across America, sharing insights and forecasts regarding megatrends that affect us all. In what direction will the convergence of global policy, tech advancements, and investment travel? What will this new enviro-based reality look like next year? In 2050? Learn how some of the sharpest, most informed leaders in the industry plan to attack this mobility riddle. The Ricardo Mobility Summit Convergence, April 22nd, beginning at 11 a.m. Eastern. By combining a blend of one-on-one -on -one discussions, roundtable sessions, and new product demos from Ricardo, Convergence addresses the challenges and complexities throughout the transportation sector. It's a showcase for hot topics such as the evolution of propulsion, software, connectivity, autonomy, and digitization. For more information about the Ricardo Mobility Summit Convergence, go to ricardo-northamerica.com. That's ricardo-northamerica.com. And now back to our conversation with Sean Harrington. You know, Wall Street obviously seems uh, bullish on certain technologies in the AV space, uh, namely LIDAR. And we've seen a wave mm -hmm. of uh, SPAC deals, at least, you know, five or <laughs> yeah. so in the last six months. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Some wonder, though, if uh, the industry is getting ahead of itself. 
do you think that there's enough AV business to justify this? You know, it is it is interesting to see, um, you know, areas of focus for the public markets. Um, you know, LIDAR is a very key technology when it comes to AV and, and you know, all levels of AV. So, you know, clearly there's there's uh, where we're focused, we believe, is, is a, a, you know, a really big uh, opportunity. Uh, but there are others out there focused on deliveries or trucking or the, the robo-taxi market, of course, uh, as well as the, you know, the level two, three autonomy, the advanced uh, driver assist. And, you know, in all of these scenarios, um, you know, LIDAR has a big role to play. And the, the you know, the, the technology is really at an inflection point. Uh, and transitioning from sort of small-scale nascent usage to, uh, you know, a, a much, much broader application set. And so, you know, is, is there room for, you know, five to ten really big successful companies? I think so. Uh, you know, it, it, can we tell now how many and which, you know, which ones will be most successful? Um, I don't know. Uh, certainly we have our opinions on, on which technologies uh, we find most compelling, but um, uh, you know, I, I think it's it is uh, recognition that the you know the AV industry uh, you know will evolve and uh, you know is a, is just a massive opportunity uh, overall, and companies that are uh, you know supplying uh, you know that industry with key technology like the lidar companies. Um, you know, have, have, you know, big opportunities. So, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see how, how things continue to evolve on the LIDAR side, but uh, certainly um, absolutely critical when it comes to AVs. You know, um, Sean, that raises a, a question for me. Some of the AV companies have been making acquisitions um, to get LIDAR expertise more in-house. I mean, is that something that you guys are doing or are you, have you developed your own LIDAR or are you using a commercial product or? Yeah, we're, you know, um, there isn't, there's always an important decision to make as you're developing a, a sophisticated uh, technology system as we are kind of where to invest time and, and R&D focus uh, from an IP standpoint and intellectual property standpoint. And, and what we see is, these companies that you mentioned on the LIDAR side that are getting significant uh, capital investment, um, you know, making tremendous progress that, you know, we want to, we want to leverage those, those, uh, the advances those companies are making um, and focus our attention in, in the areas where we think we have uh, the opportunity to, to differentiate most and to, you know, um, enable our service uh, specifically in a differentiated way. So when it comes to LIDAR, for example, we are using, uh, you know, partners that, uh, that have developed LIDAR. Same goes for, um, you know, compute. You see some uh, autonomous mobility or AV companies uh, developing their own custom compute. And what we've seen is now that, uh, you know, the, the industry that is supplying you know, these types of, of key components are, are getting to auto grade quality. They're, they're getting to the scale and, um, you know, the, the industrial, you know, auto grade requirements that are needed 
um, that we can leverage those and, and not have to you know, go invest our own R&D in those areas. So, um, you know, so that's, uh, that's how we think about it. Uh, to shift gears just a little bit on that note, um, last year the company announced that it was working with Microsoft on a virtual ride assistant. Mm -hmm. um, I was hoping you could tell us and listeners a little bit more about that partnership and what Microsoft's role is. Yeah, we were excited to partner with with Microsoft and their Azure platform, uh, particularly on uh, natural language processing. And uh, we developed in partnership with Azure what we call our virtual ride assistant, um, which basically allows uh, users in the vehicle to, uh, you know, to press a button, um, you know, to have, uh, you know, an, an interaction. Um, with that virtual ride assistant where, you know, questions and answers, uh, you know, are exchanged. This is really part of our overall uh, DVX, the driverless experience uh, development that I mentioned earlier, trying to make sure that, um, you know, that we can, you know, provide an experience that gives our riders the, the, the comfort and convenience and fun um, in addition to, you know, the, the sort of, uh, of course, essential uh, feeling of safety that, that that is required, and so the VRA was uh, a project that helped us uh, sort of demonstrate um, how natural language processing and, and Azure's uh, tools there could be um, can be implemented in a in an autonomous vehicle uh, setting, and we're excited to sort of showcase that. Hey, Sean, um, I'm just curious about what kind of feedback in general you're getting from your um, users. I mean, what are they telling you about the experience of riding in one of your um, self-driving shuttles? Yeah, so um, we we do a lot of work to uh, get feedback from the, the riders and users of our system. Uh, we frequently run surveys uh, collecting qualitative feedback as well as net promoter score evaluations. Um, you know, we're very proud to have uh, an, an extremely high NPS score, um, you know, folks, uh, you know, using our service on a regular basis. In fact, I was just uh, visiting our Brooklyn Navy Yard site and uh, we were, you know, we were talking about some of the latest results and then I was uh, in a vehicle uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, asked one of the riders who happened to be getting out of one of the shuttles, what they thought of, of the service. And uh, they said that they loved it, they use it every day and they would be late for work uh, if it weren't for us. Um, and so in general, what we hear from people is it's, it's, uh, it's a key part of, of their day, those who use it regularly, um, that it's, it's fun, it's convenient. Uh, and of course, folks are always sort of excited to, to be able to experience something as, as cutting edge as, as autonomous mobility and sort of to be a part of it, um, you know, is, is exciting. Uh, Sean, you, you all got recently involved in food delivery for communities in need. Um, what was the genesis of that project and will you continue exploring uh, that delivery model? Yeah, so uh, during the, the COVID-19 pandemic last year, um, at some of our locations, what we realized quickly was that as, uh, you know, as folks were 
looking at the path ahead, whether it was residents at uh, Paradise Valley Estates or um, you know the 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 retail and restaurant operators in in Brooklyn Navy Yard, um, you know that uh, there was an opportunity here as as passenger travel was being reduced and people were moving more into sort of shelter in place that. The, that we could help support our communities by providing delivery services because, um, you know, the, the local merchants, um, restaurant operators, and, and in the residential communities, um, you know, they they wanted to get, uh, you know, meals out and and deliver other important, uh, you know, packages and goods out to their uh, constituents. And and so we we said, hey, we can accommodate that. We have a safety operator in the vehicle. Uh, so that safety operator can also serve as the delivery person. Um, and, you know, we were able to deliver thousands of meals um, and, you know, and, and really support our community. Now, in the long run, Optimus Ride is a passenger mobility service. Uh, that, that is our focus. There are, there are plenty of uh, companies out there focused on, on how to sort of enable uh, you know, delivery, whether it be autonomous or, or other uh, in the future. And, uh, you know, that technology is exciting and evolving. Um, we, you know, we are uh, primarily focused on, uh, you know, on passenger, or we are very focused on passenger mobility. Um, and, and, you know, that's, uh, that's where we'll be investing our, our time and energy from a product road uh, map standpoint. But we're very proud of the fact that we were able to support our, our, you know, our end users and our and the communities that we serve through the pandemic with some delivery. Tell us more about the Optimus fleet. Um, how many vehicles are there, and are they purpose built, or are you using an existing vehicle uh, retrofitted with self driving features? We have a terrific partnership with uh, Polaris, which is a Minnesota-based recreational. Uh, vehicle and equipment company that uh, that produces the Polaris Gem, which is uh, a terrific low-speed vehicle that is ideal for our use cases. There are, uh, you know, different versions of it, but we uh, primarily use the six-passenger uh, vehicle that has six separate doors. It's got easy entry, exit. Um, you know, it, it's uh, all electric, and so from a sustainability standpoint, uh, you know, zero emission, uh, and it uh, it's manufactured in the U.S. in California in Anaheim. I was recently down there visiting the manufacturing site, and it's super impressive to, you know, to see um, you know uh, a vehicle of that quality being manufactured, um, you know, here right in California where I live. Um, and so we take that Polaris Jam vehicle and we augment it with uh, the sensors, uh, primarily camera and LIDAR uh, and the compute and, and some other sort of hardware components. And, and then, of course, we deploy our autonomous uh, software stack from perception all the way to motion control uh, in the vehicle, uh, in, the, in the compute on the vehicle. And, uh, and then we operate those uh, those uh, those vehicles. Um, we have uh, dozens of vehicles out on the road in operation today uh, across the uh, the five commercial sites that I mentioned. Um, we uh, you know we have some that are more 
research and development focused, and then we have some that are just you know purely in service of of the um, the the commercial services that we're that we're offering at those customer locations. Okay, Sean, uh, we're running out um, a little short on time, but I wanted to make sure I ask you a little bit about your background. Now, you joined mm -hmm. the company just this past November, right? And you were working in telecom. So can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to this crazy world of automated vehicles? <laughs> well, it's an exciting space. Uh, you know, what, what's not to like about, um, you know, autonomous vehicles? Um, yes, I was most recently at Verizon. I was uh, VP of City Solutions. And I'd come to Verizon through the acquisition of Sensity, a company that uh, you know that I'd helped build from the ground up, uh, and you know we had been the the leader in smart city technology. So we developed, uh, uh, you know, in particular a system that could go uh, a, a camera that was deployed at intersections to to detect and classify road users, so vehicles and pedestrians and cyclists. Um, and then feed that information into traffic management systems. That was one of the, the solutions that we had and Verizon um, made a strategic decision to invest in smart city technology, uh, acquired Sensity, and I continued to lead the team that was uh, building out a whole portfolio of smart city solutions, including in the mobility sector. Um, and through that work, I just, I, I you know, was fortunate to be able to uh, you know, dig into what was happening on the AV side, um, you know, from the vantage point of Verizon, meaning, you know, how can we use uh, the network? So how can we uh, leverage 5G network combined with, uh, you know, some of the data that is, is going to be very valuable uh, coming from the infrastructure, like those cameras I mentioned that can detect uh, what's happening at intersections in real time. And, and you know, feed that into autonomous vehicles through um, you know through CB to X uh, type technologies, and and uh, you know, and, and leverage the 5G network for that. Um, and so that's what got me really interested, and I was I was fascinated by um, you know the conversations we were having at Verizon with uh, some of the large vehicle OEMs, uh, you know, and the AV companies. And when I uh, when I saw Optimus, what what really captured my attention, um, you know, was the fact that it was this balance of of having that big vision, but also being practical and focusing on level four, uh, because I, you know, I, I just really felt that, uh, you know, there there was an opportunity to be, uh, you know, to be focused and and practical in the near term, and how, you know, we could apply this this type of AB technology. So that's a bit of the background on on how my time at Verizon led me into this uh, exciting world of AVs. You just mentioned briefly 5G. Um, can you talk about how key 5G technology is to the future of uh, AV shuttles and, uh, you know, really the future of mobility? 5G will, will definitely provide an opportunity to, um, you know, augment the, the capability of AVs and accelerate um, you know, the adoption, uh, you know, of vehicles, because th there's certainly going to be valuable data that comes from, uh, you know, from the vantage point of, of the infrastructure. Um, there's also going to be important data that will be able to be 
collected from other vehicles that are out on the road and shared with with AVs. Um, I mean, just one simple example is you think of traffic signals uh, and the signal phase, meaning whether the you know, the traffic signal is red, green, yellow, turn light, what have you. Um, that information is 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 uh, is super valuable to any vehicle that's out on the road, in particular autonomous vehicles. And um, and so being able to get that information fed into vehicles in real time with with the you know the very tight latency requirements um, uh, you know and, and that that come with with uh, 5G um, you know certainly we'll be able to add value in terms of efficiency so how uh, you know how well vehicles you know move around a, a given traffic corridor. Um, you know, as well as as providing additional you know safety benefits. So um, I, I will caveat all of that, or, or say that first and foremost, autonomous vehicles will have to operate safely, independently, you know, w without a reliance on it, the network uh, like the 5G network. But um, but certainly, you know, as 5G gets deployed. In, in greater density and and with these additional services, it will help and and accelerate the adoption. Well, Sean, um, this has been a really, really fascinating uh, conversation. And I just wanted to know, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us? Anything else, um, any other message that you'd like to get across about Optimus Ride? No, I, I appreciate, um, you know, Leslie and Alexis spending the time with you. Um, you know, we're, you know, we we recently launched, as you know, the, the passenger service in Washington D.C. at the yards uh, with Brookfield. Um, you know, we're excited about that, along with the the first deployment we had with Brookfield in uh, Reston, Virginia, and Haley Rise, and uh, you know, and and we have a number of of upcoming deployments, and and you know, news we're going to be excited to share. Uh, here soon. So just to say that, um, you know, there's a lot going on and, and we believe that, uh, uh, you know, Optimus Ride is, is well positioned here to completely transform, um, you know, passenger mobility in a positive way, providing, uh, you know, a, a significantly improved uh, end user experience, the rider experience, uh, while also, you know, delivering on a, a much bigger mission to provide uh, mobility in a more sustainable way, uh, reducing congestion and and uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so, you know, we've got we've got big plans and excited to continue sharing more uh, with you and, and others as we uh, as we make progress. Well, that's wonderful, uh, Sean. So we hope we can have you on the show at some point in the future where you can tell us about the exciting developments that are coming. So thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, we're happy to do so. Thank you both. Thanks again, Sean, and thanks, Leslie, for, for closing out that conversation. Uh, we'll be back again next week with uh, more talk on all things mobility. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks everybody for listening. Big thanks to our producer, Eric Jones, and we'll see you all next week.